never clock out. Clock in, never clock out. No way with the slackers. No, no way with the slackers. No, 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 no way with the slackers. Clock in, never clock out. Clock in, never clock out. Clock in, never clock out. Welcome, welcome to the Path of Revelation podcast. I'm your host, Gabriel Parker, and this is where the culture meets scripture. Listen, I have a great show today for you guys. We're going to be remembering the life and legacy of the apologist, Dr. Ravi Zacharias, who made his transition earlier today. I know it's Wednesday for you guys. I record the show on Tuesday. And today, um, the man of God made his transition and went home to be with the Lord. And listen, and, and though many of us may be heavy hearted and, and sad, I also know for many of us, this is a celebration because he is with the Lord. The Bible lets us know in Second Corinthians chapter five, verse eight, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And listen, we have this hope in in Christ Jesus that when we see him, there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain or sickness or disease, but he will wipe every tear. And so our our hope lies in in the fact that Jesus rose from the grave and that he is who he said he is. And so we know Dr. Ravi Ravi Zacharias is with the Lord. And that is and should be all of our goals as believers. And so today we're going to celebrate his life. I also want to deal with the importance of apologetics and what apologetics is is and why it's so important as Christians for us to know what we believe and why we believe it. And so I want to hop into a, a quick clip of Dr. Ravi Zacharias. I do not own the rights to this sound clip. By the way, Al has got one of the finest critiques on Brian McLaren's uh, Generous Orthodoxy, which I have downloaded before and used. Uh, you must follow up on that. There's another angle of this which uh, I, I will address, and that is that these emergent churches are going to produce a generation of people who actually will not be able to handle the challenge of Islam and other major world religions. They will not be able to handle it. And uh, my wife and I were having dinner with a very notable gentleman, I shall leave unnamed, but he was... Um, he says he communicates to more people across television than anybody else in the world at any, on any given day. And uh, I won't say too much more, but we're sitting across the table and he said he'd just been talking to a Muslim scholar and came away quite impressed with the fact that he had not known that there was really not that much of difference between Islam and Christianity. So my wife and I were having dinner with him and my wife is very, very well controlled in her expressions and I thought she was going to choke at that moment. I had to just... <laughs> Uh, turn over to her and calm her down. Uh, I said, uh, why did you say that? He said, well, you know, he talked about all the points of agreement we have and so on. I said, well, let's go from here. They don't believe we have the Bible, that the New Testament is lost. They don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. They don't believe he died on the cross. They don't believe he rose again from the dead. They don't believe he's coming again as king. Do you think there's a difference between what they believe and what we do? I said they don't have the gospel but you know this is the problem 
the Muslims have shown us up. We don't know what we believe. When they present their ideas to an average young Christian going to a, one, of the, one of these emergent churches, one of the most prominent of those churches draws about 20,000 on Sunday. You can read his book. In that entire book of having a better life now and best life now and so on, there is not one mention of the cross in it. There, there is no gospel there. And so, you know, along with all the other compromises, we're going to be shown up. And the whole idea of RC here, you can't show counterfeit if you do not know what the genuine is. And I think that's a big price we are going to pay very dearly as a result of this kind of lack of proper teaching. Just recently, Ravi, uh, I saw a television preacher uh, whose name I won't mention to protect the guilty. <clears throat> he made this statement, and I, it takes a lot to shock me in this day and age, but he said, I don't care who you are, what you have done, or who you have done it with, God is not angry at you. Oh. What does that have to do with, with the New Testament view of, of God, of sin, of the cross? I mean, why would anybody need to, to come to Christ mm -hmm. if God's not angry? and where the gospel talks us about being saved from the wrath that is to come. But we don't believe in the wrath of God anymore. That's, that's, uh, that's something that has to go. It's incompatible with postmodern thinking. Mm. Very sad. And so that was a clip of Dr. Ravi Zacharias and the late great R.C. Sproul, who also passed away back in 2017, and so this this show is is a is an important show for a couple of reasons. But what's crazy about this show, even prior to uh, Ravi Zacharias passing away this morning, I was already planning to talk about the importance of apologetics during this show. And so what better way to talk about the importance of apologetics in, in highlighting one of the greatest apologists that this world has ever seen. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited to reflect on his life, but also talk about what, what is apologetics and why it's so important. And so when we look at the word apologetics, it's defined as reasoning arguments or writings in justification of theory or religious doctrine. In simple terms, apologetics is contending and defending the faith, De contending and defending the Christian faith. And so apologetics is, is really important as Christians. It's, it's important for us to know what we believe and why we believe it. And Unfortunately, there are many Christians who don't see the importance or, or, or the real need for apologetics. But yet the Bible says this in first Peter chapter three, verse 15, it says, 
But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And so we have to always be ready to give a response for why we believe and trust in Christ. Why do why are we Christians? And and this is important for us as believers to be able to answer uh, questions about what we believe. It's not just enough to say, oh, I, I was raised in church or my, my, my grandfather was a Christian and my parents was a Christian, so I'm a Christian. No, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Why do you believe that he rose from the grave? And all of these things are important. And, and listen, we have to have we have to be able to articulate our testimony because at the end of the day, apologetics is about souls. It's about winning people for Christ. And one of the things um, and one of the reasons why apologetics is has become more and more dear to my heart. Um, it seems as the time as I get become older is because there are so many people that I call friend or at one point called friends or call friends to this day that I used to do ministry with or grew up with, grew up in church with who are no longer Christians now. And I've been challenged to dig deeper in my faith. Um, when 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 questions are asked or, or brought to me about why I believe what I believe and and when I hear these stories of why people have left Christianity and so it it drives me to get deeper in the word and to know Christ the more because I know he's real you can't I know I know he's alive but there are also different questions and, 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 and stumbling blocks for people that we as Christians need to know what we believe so we can give a response of the hope that lies on the inside of us. And so apologetics is very, very important. And you may not have a, a degree in theology. I don't have a degree in theology. You may not know all of the theological terms and or or may have not been to seminary or anything like that but look you don't you need to know your bible we need to know the word of god for ourselves and and so the bible says to study to show yourself approved and so as christians we have to be able to articulate our faith in a very practical yet real way and so i'm really excited about um, what God is doing uh, in the life of many believers today, because I'm, I'm beginning to see more and more people gravitate to apologetics and recognize the importance of apologetics as many of these 
many cults like Hebrew Israelites and um, many people are gravitating uh, specifically in the black church. A lot of people have been gravitating to African religion and many of these type of cults that people leave church to become a part of. One of the reasons is why the church has been slack concerning apologetics and sound doctrine. And so um, one of the reasons on this show, I spend a lot of time dealing with uh, sound doctrine as it relates to the church is because I believe when we as the church are not preaching the gospel or or, or rightfully dividing the word of truth, a lot of times we miss opportunities to serve and edify people and build people up and lead them to Christ because we're a lot of times we can be focused on so many other things that has nothing to do with the salvation of the soul, has nothing to do with actually growing in the Lord. And so I'm excited about apologetics and something that I really want to kind of talk about more in future shows and, and things of that nature. But listen, I want to reflect and, and, and share with you guys Ravi Zacharias's obituary, which is on um, his website, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. It is rzim.org. Listen, if you don't, if you're not familiar with Ravi Zacharias, I would highly recommend for you guys to look up some of his work. He has so much, so many resources on, on the website that I just mentioned and so many resources on YouTube. I mean, I've learned so much from just watching a lot of his videos and things of that nature. But I want to hop into his obituary just to kind of give you guys just a a, a, a taste and, and, and a glimpse in in what God ha- accomplished through this man of God. And then I want to play a clip featuring Ravi Zacharias where he answers the question, why Christianity is true. But his Obituary reads as follows, when Ravi Zacharias was a cricket-loving boy on the streets of India, his mother called him in to meet the local sari seller turned palm reader. Quote, looking at your future, Ravi Baba, you will not travel far or very much in your life, end of quote, he declared. Quote, that's what the lines on your hand tell me. There is no future for you abroad. End of quote. By the time a 37-year-old Zacharias preached at the invitation of Billy Graham to the inaugural International Conference for Interant Evangelists in Amsterdam in 1983, He was on his way to becoming one of the foremost defenders of Christianity's intellectual credibility. A year later, he founded Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, RZIM, with the mission of, quote, helping the thinker believe and the believer think, end of quote. In the time between Sari Seller's prediction and the founding of RZIM, 
Zacharias had immigrated to Canada, taken the gospel across North America, prayed with military prisoners in Vietnam, and ministered to students in Cambodia on the brink of collapse. He had also undertaken a global preaching trip as newly licensed minister with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, along with his wife, Margie, and eldest daughter, Sarah. This trip started in England, worked eastwards through Europe and the Middle East, and finished on the Pacific Rim. All in all, that year, Zacharias preached nearly 600 times in over a dozen countries. Wow, that's that's phenomenal. It was the culmination of a remarkable transformation set in motion when Zacharias recovering in a Delhi hospital from a suicide attempt at age 17 was read the words of Jesus recorded in the Bible by the Apostle John, quote, because I live, you will also live, end of quote. In response, Zachariah, Zacharias surrendered his life to Christ and offered up a prayer that if he emerged from the hospital, he would leave no stone unturned in his pursuit of truth. Once Zacharias found the truth of the gospel, his passion for sharing it burned bright until the very end. Even as he returned home from the hospital in Texas, where he had been undergoing chemotherapy, Zacharias was sharing the hope of Jesus to three nurses who tucked him in to his transport. Frederick Anthony Ravi Kumar Zacharias was born in Madras, now Chennai, in 1946, in the shadow of the resting place of the Apostle Thomas, known to the world as the Doubter, but to Zacharias as the Great Questioner. Zacharias's affinity with Thomas meant he was always more interested in the questioner than the question itself. His mother, Isabella, was a teacher. His father, Oscar, who was studying labor relations at the University of Nottingham in England when Zacharias was born, rose through the ranks of the Indian civil service throughout Zacharias's adolescence. An unremarkable student, Zacharias was more interested in cricket than books until his encounter with the gospel in that hospital bed. Nevertheless, a bold, radical faith ran in his genes. In the Indian state of Kerala, his paternal great-grandfather and grandfather produced the 20th century's first Malayalam English Dictionary. This dictionary served as the cornerstone of the first Malayalam translation of the Bible. Further back, Zacharias's great-great-great-grandmother shocked her Nambadiri family, the highest caste of the Hindu priesthood, by converting to Christianity. 
with conversion came a new surname, Zacharias, and a new path that started her descendants on a road to the Christian faith. Wow, this is phenomenal. Zacharias saw the Lord's hand at work in his family's tapestry, and he infused RZIM with the same transgenerational and transcultural heart for the gospel. He created a ministry that transcended his personality, where every speaker, whatever their background, presented the truth in the context of the contemporary. Zacharias believed if you achieve that, your message will always would always be necessary. Thirty six years since its establishment, the ministry still bears the name chosen for Zacharias's ancestor. However, where where once there was a single speaker, now there are nearly a hundred gifted speakers who on any given night can be found sharing the gospel at events across the globe where once it was run from Zacharias's home. Now the ministry has a presence in 15 countries on five continents. Zacharias's passion and urgency to take the gospel to all nations was forged in Vietnam throughout the summer of 71. Zacharias had immigrated to Canada in 1966, a year after winning a preaching award at a Youth for Christ Congress in Hyderabad. It was there in Toronto that Ruth Jeffrey, the veteran missionary to Vietnam, heard him preach. She invited him to her adopted land. That summer, Zacharias, only just 25, found himself flown across the country by helicopter, gunship to preach at military bases, in hospitals, and in, and in prisons to the Viet Cong. Most nights, Zacharias and his translator, Hien Pham, would fall asleep to the sound of gunfire. On one trip across remote land, Zacharias and his travel companions' car broke down. The lone jeep that passed ignored their roadside waves. They finally cranked the engine to life and set off, only to come across the same jeep a few miles on, overturned and riddled with bullets, all four passengers dead. He later said of this moment, quote, God will stop our steps when it is not our time, and he will lead us when it is, end of quote. Days later, Zacharias and his translator stood at the graves of six missionaries killed unarmed when the Viet Cong stormed their compound. Zacharias knew some of their children. It was that level of trust in God and the desire to stand beside those who minister in areas of great risk that is a hallmark of RZIM. Its support for Christian evangelists in places where many ministries fear to tread, including northern Nigeria, Pakistan, 
South African townships, the Middle East and North Africa can be traced back to the to that formative graveside moment. After this formative trip, Zacharias and his new bride, Margie, moved to Deerfield, Illinois, to study for a Master of Divinity at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Here, the young couple lived two doors down from Zacharias's classmate and friend, William Lane Craig. After graduating, Zacharias taught at the Alliance Theological Seminary in New York and continued to travel the country preaching on weekends. Full-time teaching combined with his extensive travel and interim preaching led Zacharias to describe these three years as the toughest in his 48-year marriage to Margie. He felt his job at the seminary was changing him, and his preaching far more than he was changing lives with the hope of the gospel. It was at that point that Graham invited Zacharias to speak at his inaugural international conference for interrent evangelists in Amsterdam in 1983. Zacharias didn't realize Graham even knew who he was, let alone knew about his preaching. In front of 3,800 evangelists from 133 countries, Zacharias opened with the line, quote, My message is, is a very difficult one. End of quote. He went on to tell them that religions, 20th century cultures and philosophies had formed, quote, vast chasms between the message of Christ in the mind of man, end of quote. Even more difficult was his message, which received a mid-talk ovation about his fear that, quote, in certain strands of evangelicalism, we sometimes think it is necessary to so humiliate someone of a different worldview that we think unless we destroy everything he holds valuable, we cannot preach to him the gospel of Christ. What I am saying is this, when you are trying to reach someone, please be sensitive to what he holds valuable. End of quote. That talk changed Zacharias's future and arguably the future of apologetics, dealing with the hard questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny that every worldview must answer. Flying back to the U.S., Zacharias shared his thoughts with Margie. As one colleague has expressed, quote, he saw the objections and questions of others not as something to be rebuffed, but as a cry of the heart that had to be answered. People weren't logical problems waiting to be solved. They were people who needed the person of Christ. End of quote. No one was reaching out to the thinker, to the questioner. It was on that flight that Zacharias and Margie planted the seed of a ministry intended to meet the thinker where they were. 
to train cultural evangelists, apologists, to reach those opinion makers of society, the seed was watered and nurtured through its early years by the businessman D.D. Davis, a man who became a father figure to Zacharias. With the establishment of the ministry, the Zacharias family moved south to Atlanta. By now, the family had grown with the addition of a second daughter, Naomi, and a son, Nathan. Atlanta was the city Zacharias would call home for the last 36 years of his life. Meeting the thinker face to face was an intrinsic part of Zacharias's ministry with post event Q&A sessions often last longing into the night. Not to be quelled in the sharing of the gospel, Zacharias also took to the airwaves in the 1980s. Many people, not just in the U.S., but across the world, came to hear the message of Christ for the first time through Zacharias's radio program. Let my people think. In weekly half-hour slots, Zacharias explored issues such as the credibility of the Christian message and the Bible, the weakness of modern intellectual movements, and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Today, Let My People Think is syndicated to over 2,000 stations in 32 countries and has also been downloaded 15.6 million times as a podcast over the last year. Wow, that's crazy. As the ministry grew, so did the demands on Zacharias. In 1990, he followed in his father's footsteps to England. He took a sabbatical at Ridley Hall in Cambridge. It was a time surrounded by family and where he wrote the first of his 28 books. A Shattered Visage, The Real Face of Atheism. It was no coincidence that throughout the rhythm of his interrent life, it was among his family and Margie, in particular, that his writing was at its most productive. Margie inspired each of Zacharias's books. With her eagle eye and keen mind, she read the first draft of every manuscript. From the Logic of God, which was this year awarded the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association Christian Book Award in the category of Bible study and his latest work. Seeing Jesus from the East, co-authored with colleague Abdu Murray. Others among that list included the ECPA Gold Medallion Book Award winner, Can Man Live Without God? and Christian bestsellers, Jesus Among Other Gods, and The Grand Weaver. Zacharias's books have sold hundreds of thousands of copies worldwide and have been translated into over a dozen languages. Zacharias's desire to train evangelists, undergirded with apologetics, in order to engage with culture shapers had been happening informally over the years but finally became formal in 2004. It was a monumentous year for Zacharias in the ministry with the establishment of OCCA, 
the Oxford Centra for Christian Apologetics, the launch of Wellspring International, and Zacharias's appearance at the United Nations Annual International Prayer Breakfast. OCCA was founded with the help of Professor Alistair McGrath, the RZIM team and the staff at Wycliffe Hall, a permanent private hall of Oxford University, where Zacharias was an honorary senior research fellow between 2007 and 2015. Over his lifetime, Zacharias would receive 10 honorary doctorates in recognition of his public commitment to Christian thought, including one from the National University of San Marcos, the oldest established university in the Americas. Over the years, OCCA has trained over 400 students from 50 countries who have gone on to carry the gospel in many arenas across the world. Some have continued to follow an explicit calling as evangelists and apologists in Christian settings, and many others have gone on to take up roles in each of the spheres of influences Zacharias always dreamed of reaching. The arts, academia, business, media, and politics. In 2017, another apologetics training facility, the Zacharias Institute, was established at the ministry's headquarters in Atlanta to continue the work of equipping all who desire to effectively share the gospel and answer the common objections to Christianity with gentleness and respect. In 2014, the same heart lay behind the creation of the RZIM Academy, an online apologetics training curriculum. Across 140 countries, the Academy's courses have been accessed by thousands in multiple languages. In the same year OCCA was founded, Zacharias launched Wellspring International, the humanitarian division of the ministry. Wellspring International was shaped by the memory of his mother's heart to work with the destitute and is led by his daughter Naomi. Founded on the principle that love is the most powerful apologetic, it exists to come alongside local partners that meet critical needs of vulnerable women and children around the world. Zacharias's appearance at the UN in 2004 was the second of four that made in the 21st century and represented his increasing impact in the arena of global leadership. He had first made his mark as the Cold War was coming to an end. His internationalist outlook and ease among his fellow man, whether Soviet military leader or precocious Ivy League undergraduate, opened doors that had been closed for many years. One such military leader was General Yuri Kershine who in 1992 paved the way for Zacharias to speak at the Lenin Military Academy in Moscow. Zacharias saw the cost of enforced atheism in the Soviet Union. 
the abandonment of religion had created the illusion of power and the reality of self-destruction. A year later, Zacharias traveled to Colombia, where he spoke to members of the judiciary on the necessity of a moral framework to make sense of the incoherent worldview that had taken hold in the South American nation. Zacharias's stand on the world stage spanned to the um, span the continents and the decades. In January 2020, as part of his final foreign trip, he was invited by eight division world champion boxer and Philippine Senator Manny Pacquiao to speak at the National Bible Day prayer breakfast in, in Manila. It was an invitation that followed Zacharias's November 2019 appearance at the National Theater in, in Abu Dhabi as part of the United Arab Emirates Year of Tolerance. In 1992, Zacharias's apologetics ministry expanded from the political arena to academia with the launching of the first ever Veritas Forum. Hosted on the campus of Harvard University, Zacharias was asked to be the keynote speaker at the inaugural event. The lectures Zacharias delivered that weekend would form the basis of the best-selling book, Can Man Live Without God?, and would open up opportunities to speak at university campuses across the world. The invitations that followed exposed Zacharias to the intense longing of young people for meaning and identity 28 years after that first Veritas Forum event. In what would prove to be the, his last speaking engagement, Zacharias spoke to a crowd over 7,000 at the University of Miami's West Waisco Center on the subject of does God exist? It is a question also asked behind the walls of Louisiana State Penitentiary, also known as Angola Prison, the largest maximum security prison in the United States. Zacharias had prayed with the prisoners of war all those years ago in Vietnam. But walking through death row left an even deeper impression. Zacharias believed the gospel shined with grace and power, especially in the darkest places and praying with those on death row, quote, makes it impossible to block the tears, end of quote. It was his third visit to Angola and such is his deep connection. The inmates have made Zacharias the coffin in which he will be buried. As he writes in Seeing Jesus from the East, quote, These prisoners know that this world is not their home and that no coffin could ever be their final destination. Jesus assured us of that, end of quote. In November last year, a few months after his last visit to Angola, Zacharias stepped down as president of RZIM to focus on his worldwide speaking commitments and writing projects. He passed the leadership to his daughter, Sarah Davis, as global CEO and longtime colleague Michael Ramsdeen as president. 
Davis had served as the ministry's global executive director since 2011, while Ramsdean had established the European wing of the ministry in Oxford in 1997. He was there in 2018. Zacharias told the story of standing with his successor in front of Lazarus's grave in Cyprus. The stone simply reads, quote, Lazarus, four days dead, friend of Christ, end of quote. Zacharias turned to Ramsdean and said, if he was remembered as, quote, a friend of Christ, that would be all I want, end of quote. Ravi Zacharias, who died of cancer on May 19th, 2020, at age 74, is survived by Margie, his wife of 48 years, his three children, Sarah, the global CEO of RZIM, Naomi, director of Wellspring International, and Nathan, RZIM's creative director for media, and five grandchildren. Listen, the reason why I read his entire obituary is because it's, it, it inspires me. And I pray that it inspires you guys as well. I'm reminded of Romans chapter one, verse 16, where it says, for I am unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Listen, my prayer is that we as the church get back focused on Christ, pointing people to Christ. It's time to get rid of this. Christ, who is a genie and lives and exists to serve our desires and our wants. And it's time to get back to the Bible. And you know what? The Bible is about Jesus. And so, listen, I want to end with playing this clip of Dr. Ravi Zacharias and his co-laborer, Vince Vitale, as they answer the question, why is Christianity true? And I do not own the rights to this sound clip. For you is that through my, you know, cursory review of most religions, it seems like they all have a common thread of answering the question which seems to plague us all, which is what happens to us when we die. It's the one question I think that a lot of us have difficulty with because we cannot answer it. And so it seems like this common thread is it gives us hope for the afterlife, something better than what we have right now. And it feels like, I feel like a lot of religions that what they do is they put forth codes or rules of conduct to help us live a good life so that we can achieve this afterlife. And so given this commonality, what makes you believe that Christianity is the correct or right religion? <laughs> Great question. Great question. And your name is? Suketu. Spell that for me. S-U-K-E-T-U. Suketu. I think you've asked a very, very important question. First of all, let me qualify it a little bit, and I'm sure you already know that, that not all religions talk about an afterlife, uh, mainly the monotheistic ones do. The pantheistic ones are reincarnation, even the reincarnation between Buddhism and Hinduism is a little different. In Hinduism, it's the transference of identity one into another in a different form, but in uh, Buddhism, it's not even sure whether it's the identity that's transmigrated or just another form of essence that has emerged. 
A worldview is built not on one line of argument. A worldview is built on a connected series of arguments. And if a worldview were just built on one line of argument, I think this is the mistake naturalism often makes. It'll take sort of one argument that it has in its favor and forget all the myriad other questions that emerge. When I look at the person and the work of Jesus Christ, this is the most important question I had to ask. Now granted, I asked it in reverse fashion because I was on a bed of suicide, a Bible was brought to me and I prayed a prayer of desperation. I grant you that, I just had no hope. But I was read the verse, Jesus said, because I live, you also shall live. I just said, this is talking about a life that I don't have. And maybe this is the life I need. And so I prayed that prayer. But then I made a prayer commitment right on that bed. I was 17 and I said, Jesus, if you're who you claim to be, I will leave no stone unturned in my pursuit of truth. Because my goal was truth. Pragmatically, it made sense for me to hang on to a life jacket that was thrown my way. But then I began my years and years and years of study. When you look at the life of Christ from the prophetic schema of hundreds of years before, where he was going to be born, what he was going to do, what his name was going to be called, how the manner of birth was, the manner of life he was going to lead, how he was going to die, and then the resurrection from the dead. The uniqueness about the New Testament and Old Testament scriptures, it's not a single author. It's multiple authors. As you know, 66 books, 40 different authors have edited it. And it is interesting that Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who wrote one-third of it, came in a reverse fashion to the rest of them. The disciples came birth, life, death, resurrection, and that's how they found new Jesus. Not so with Saul, who came to be, who became Paul. He said, when he was encountered the risen Christ, he said that I may know him, the power of the resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. He started with the resurrection, but he said he needed to understand the cross, because he came in reverse chronological order, but he encountered the risen Christ, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus and Thomas especially, these two dramatic conversions are powerful witnesses of what happened. Saul who was killing them, he was standing, standing there watching Stephen being martyred and kept the clothes of those who were stoning him. Thomas who said, I'm not going to believe until I see the resurrected Christ myself. And he went to India where there are 330 million deities. And he went and preached the gospel of Jesus and paid with his own life. That kind of dramatic transformation took place not because of just one event, but a connected series of events. So, here's the bottom line. A worldview is built around four questions. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And there are three tests for truth. Logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance. Logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance. Three tests for four questions. And when you take the, the prophecy of Christ hundreds of years before, from his virgin birth, you take the purity of his life unmatched, totally unmatched till this very day. Then the death that he promised for the forgiveness of sins, and then the resurrection. As an Easterner, I asked myself this question. When Jesus was asked how he was going to demonstrate it, if he were a fake, he would have said, I'm going to spiritually rise again. And they would never be able to falsify it. But he said, I'm bodily going to rise again. That is an empirically falsifiable dictum. All they would have had to show him was the body and say, where is he? You said he was going to rise again. So it's in the whole schema 
of the prophetic corpus, the hundreds of years, the multiple authors pointing towards the same, same person from his virgin birth to the purity of his life, to the death on the cross for forgiveness when he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. And then the resurrection again. My four questions are answered correspondingly with truth on specific questions and coherently when all of the questions are put together and answers are given. So to me, first of all, all religions are not the same. They are actually, they may, they, people say they're fundamentally the same, superficially different. Actually, they're fundamentally different and at best superficially similar. And the fundamental difference that you see in Jesus Christ is in his uniqueness and exclusivity of his claim and the embrace that he gives to all humanity, the perfection of his life, the purity of his life, the death and the resurrection. To me, that coherence of his answers convinces me that he is who he claimed to be. And truth, by definition, is exclusive. All truth claims to be exclusive. Buddhism claims to be exclusive. Hinduism claims to be exclusive. They all have exclusivity built into that. But in the person of Christ, you see the demonstration in his birth, life, death, and resurrection. So I say to me, I am convinced that because it coheres and because I have personally verified it in my own life, and you can do that too, and find that experience and that he is who he claimed to be. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to ask the next one from Twitter. Just um, to add something that Ravi's already mentioned, but the, uh, the resurrection was particularly key for me in my investigation uh, of this. I was studying philosophy. It was very important to me not to have to take some blind leap of faith and the fact that there was a publicly verifiable historical claim that I could look into was very, very important. And if you asked scholars a hundred years ago, how did we come up with a, a Christian myth of the resurrection? They would have said, well, one person told the truth to this person, that person told this person, that person told this person, and a few generations down the line, we had a crazy myth of the resurrection. Since then, in the last couple of decades, scholarship has really turned around on this question, in part because there are a few places in the Bible, in particular a passage at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, maybe you can have a look at it later, but it's a, it's a very early creed, and it lists all of the people and the groups that Jesus appeared to. He appeared to individuals and to groups at different times, in different places, doing many different things. And today, even the most atheistic critical scholars date that passage, that early creed, to almost immediately after Jesus' actual death and supposed resurrection. So the legendary development hypothesis has been thrown out of the window. What people know now is that there actually were a lot of people. The passage says hundreds of people, and then it says most of whom are still living, almost as if to say, go out and ask them yourself. There were many people who were utterly convinced they had seen this man, Jesus, alive and interacting with him after he had died. And so that then raises the question, what can account for that? What can account for this huge historical gap between what should have been the movement-ending death of Jesus and then the explosion of Christianity? Jews worshiping a man as God, unthinkable. The Sabbath changed from Saturday to Sunday unthinkable. What bridges the gap which is there no matter what you believe? That's the question for anyone. 
Christians bridge that gap with the resurrection. When I was looking into this as a university student, I asked the top two skeptical New Testament scholars at Princeton to meet up for a coffee to talk about this. Because I said, this is what I've just laid out for you. This is what I'm seeing. Here's the big gap. And I thought, okay, Christians fill that gap with the resurrection, but surely those who aren't Christians must have equally plausible alternatives. And I said to them, how do you fill that gap? And one of them glanced towards a mass hallucination hypothesis, which isn't taken seriously in the literature. She wasn't glancing towards it with any conviction either. There's simply too much data, too many appearances, too many people. Hallucinations are things that happen to individuals, not to groups. The other one who was a historian simply said, I'm not interested in that question as a historian. There was some sort of assumption that because it was a miraculous claim, it was therefore not within the remit of proper history, and I've never understood why. So for me, the resurrection, the fact that the fact that you could have arguments that you can consider for that was, that blew my mind. I just assumed that's an ancient claim that we could just never know whether that happened or not. But actually, you can look into it and you can look at the facts and then you can ask the question, what best explains the facts? And the reality is that today in the scholarship, the only explanation which is given any degree of credibility is the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Every other explanation has been completely undermined, and so I think it is a rational decision to say that actually happened, and then to take that next personal step of praying a prayer like the one that I prayed, which was, God, the Christian God, I don't know if I'm talking to anyone, but if I am, I'd really... Listen, thank you guys for tuning in to the Path of Revelation podcast. Make sure you write in your prayer requests and questions for future shows. You can go to pathofrevelationnow.com. Thank you guys. And this is where the culture meets scripture.